Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Today's episode marks the end of Season 1 of Our Missouri, and all of us here appreciate your continued support of the podcast. We'll be back in September 2019 with Season 2, but also be sure to mark your calendar for our special summer series on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, which launches at the end of June. To wrap up Season 1, we have a special guest with us today talking about an important topic not only in the history of the state, but also for current issues along its banks, the Missouri River. Our guest is Amaya Mayer. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Missouri and presently serves as an associate professor of history at Drake University. Her book, A River in the City of Fountains, An Environmental History of Kansas City and the Missouri River, was published by the University of Kansas Press in 2018. In it, she explores the complex history of the river known as the Big Muddy. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Amaya. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about the origins of your book project? Sure. So I moved to Missouri for graduate school um, at Mizzou to study environmental history with Susan Slaughter. And I think I was already oriented towards rivers because the year before graduate school, I had been living in um, Bilbao, which is in the Basque Country in Spain. And it's an old, a gritty industrial city on the banks of uh, the Nervion River. And it had, you know, only recently kind of revamped its urban riverscape. And it had the, Guggen, the fancy Guggenheim Museum by Frank Gehry. And so it had this kind of grit and shine and, and much attention to the river. The city was uh, very attentive to its river. And before that, of course, I had been an undergraduate um, and lived in Portland, Oregon, um, which is also a city that is oriented towards its rivers, the Willamette and the Columbia. And I had studied, I did a, a capstone research, and I also worked at the Historical Society, both of them having to do um, with the Columbia River. And so I was already thinking about rivers. and when I moved to Missouri, I think the Missouri River is a mighty majestic river, and yet I wasn't feeling it from people who lived there, um, and especially in Kansas City, which is where I started doing the research, is that there seemed to be a disconnect between the people who lived in Kansas City and the fact that this mighty majestic river was flowing by them, flowing through them, and um, People didn't see it or appreciate it. And so that disconnect um, was part of what I was very interested in exploring. And as I continued to do my research, I, I mean, I just deeply fell in love with the Missouri River. And I would bike along, you know, if you live in Columbia, you have access to the Katy Trail very nearby. So I would, you know, almost every day go out and ride along the river. And eventually, um, I took a bicycle trip 
1,600 miles up the river um, from Columbia. And just to stay close to the river and to talk to people near the river and to feel like I knew the river and the landscape and the cities alongside of it better. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time with the river. (laughs) And what kind of resources did you utilize as you were working on the project? Primary sources, secondary sources? Mostly primary sources. As an environmental historian, I'm looking to use sources in a new way. And my first attention has been to um, the urban infrastructure of Kansas City. Um, how does the city function? Um, how, what is the built environment like? And how does the city literally run through the river, um, through its infrastructure, into people and then back out through its infrastructure to be returned to the river. And that sometimes requires looking at primary sources in new ways. And sometimes reading between the lines, um, thinking about how social and economic power, for example, shape built environments. Um, And I I think I was also attuned to Kansas City specifically uh, because it was ripe for a uh, a re-envisioning, I think, of its relationship to its region. Um, prior to this, a lot of attention and, and good attention um, has been paid to the politics uh, of Kansas City. Um, but I was very interested in the way that the region exists in part in a very split way. Uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, and all of its suburbs uh, are a unit, and they do operate as a unit, and yet they're also incredibly segregated. And I think seeing all of the history in juxtaposition to the present um, made this a timely topic. And in the early uh, 21st century, when I uh, started graduate school, it was also a time period when um, the Corps of Engineers was revising its master manual, um, and that's the document that um, uh, manages the Missouri River. Uh, And then also the uh, Lewis and Clark Expedition Bicentennial Commemoration was just around the corner. And so there was a moment in time where a lot of people were paying attention to the river. And uh, so this was a, a good time, I thought, to to reconsider Kansas City's history. Now, people who live in and around the Missouri River might see it simply as a waterway that bridges cross over or that, you know, a waterway that barges travel up and down upon. Yet, how do you see the river as an important component of people's everyday lives? The Missouri River is, as I said, literally flowing through people. And every aspect of Kansas City's um, economic and social life, whether it's bathing the baby and making breakfast and um, flushing the toilet, is reliant upon uh, the Missouri River. This, as well, of course, earlier in the 20th century, was much more obviously, the river was more obviously connected to its economy because Kansas City was a big booster of, of barge navigation on the Missouri River and on using the river to transport uh, goods. That didn't quite pan out, um, but that was a a focus 
um, for Kansas City's political and economic elite um, for much of the 20th, end of the 19th and 20th centuries. I think it's really easy, you know, if, as, a, as someone who has spent uh, time in Kansas City, it's very easy for the river to be invisible. Uh, if you cross the river, you're going to do so at, you know, 55, 65 <laughs> and up miles an hour. And you are jockeying with traffic. And if you want to look at the river, you know, you're going to have to, to do so while staying in your lane and craning your neck. And there's not very much, historically, the public interface with the river has really declined since the mid um, 20th century. That is, the majority of people um, can't get to the river. There are flood walls, there are levees, um, there are um, rock embankments. And it's very difficult for the average Kansas Cityan to feel connected to the river. Even though in everyday life, the, Kansas, the average Kansas Cityan is intimately connected to the Missouri River. And I wanted to reveal that connection because I think that if we culturally feel that we are connected, um, then we care. If we understand that intimate connection that we have, and some of that connection is just really mundane. Um, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's drinking water and it's um, toilets flushing and it's, it's runoff. And we forget how connected we are because we take those um, utilitarian aspects for granted. Um, I think probably most people could be familiar with this by when the, you know, when the city water goes out or when your power goes out, it's only then when you realize how important it is. Um, we've become very accustomed to having those resources at our fingertips at all times. So I wanted to um, reveal the ways that the river is at our fingertips at all times and these very mundane uses that are so key to the health and wealth of the Kansas cities. People's, people's health, physical health, um, but also its economy is built upon the, the free and easy use of the Missouri River, the flowing through of the Missouri River into infrastructure bodies and, and back into the river again. Now, presently, there has been you know, issues of flooding along various points of the river. We can think of up in Nebraska and Iowa and even portions uh, down here in uh, central Missouri and along the Missouri River Valley. And there are those who will argue that the Missouri River really floods every year. But you notably started mm -hmm. your book uh, with the 1903 flood. Uh, why was mm -hmm. that flood so significant to the people living in the Kansas cities and really throughout the Missouri River Valley? 1903 was a significant flood year. Uh, and I started, I started at that time um, for a couple of reasons. And one actually does have to do with the attention that is paid to a river because of a flood. And so while I've, I've just um, listed off the mundane ways that the river is important to people, people do think of the river when it floods. And so we forget the important ways that the river is with us on a daily basis. Um, and we tend to think of those extreme events um, like the flood. And so 1903 is, uh, it is a dramatic flood year, but it's also a, a year that people pause and and they think and they are very 
conscious of the river's existence. Um, now, it tends to be in a negative way. Um, and, you know, when you know your, um, when you know your ecology, you know that actually flooding is, as you said, something that happens um, every year. The spring rise, for example, is um, an important part of ecological cycle um, in the floodplains, et cetera. But something else is happening in the early 20th century that makes the 1903 flood significant. And that is that prior to 1903, the boosters in Kansas City, the political and economic elite, people who are connected to political power and to industry, are lobbying for two things, flood control and um, navigation infrastructure. And they're asking of this from the federal government. And so the state of Missouri and its most important lobbyist, which becomes Kansas City, um, is arguing for federal dollars to be spent to manage the Missouri River in a way that will be good for business in Kansas City and elsewhere, but especially Kansas City. Kansas Cityans are the most vocal. Uh, and the 1903 flood proved to be uh, a significant event in proving that this river management is necessary, that it's necessary to tame the river um, with levees and, and, and infrastructure. And so gradually we see in the 20th century um, more and more funds that are put forward um, managing the Missouri River for economic uses. So both to both to be able to build in the bottoms, for example, and have levees or flood walls that will protect the businesses that are there, uh, but also to um, put the river in a straitjacket, to have wing dams that channel the water so that you have a faster, deeper channel. And all of this has had great ramifications um, for the Missouri River Basin as it has uh, shifted ecologically um, and the geography has shifted as well. Um, but its intent was to, uh, to provide an economic river for the Kansas cities, a river that would work for the industrial, industrialists of the Kansas cities. And so the 1903 flood becomes one um, great piece of evidence in the file against the river and why it needs to be managed. Something similar is going to happen at mid-century. Um, there will be another um, flood for the record books in the 40s, and this happens, uh, this happens just in time for the approval of the Pick-Sloan Act. And the Pick-Sloan Act is the dream come true for the boosters and the lobbyists of river management. Uh, not only does the Pick-Sloan Act named for um, uh, named for someone from the BLM and someone from the Corps of Engineers. Um, not only does it revamp the upper Missouri Basin, but it changes the lower Missouri Basin. So upstream, this is the start of all of these very large dams, with the exception of um, one dam that was put in during the New Deal up in Montana. But the other big dams are authorized through the Pick Sloan project. And then downstream, it provides all of this money for, um, for the straight jacketing of the river. And so, yes, floods help 
uh, policymakers make up their mind. So in those moments, people are willing. Um, people are willing to put money down um, to make sure that such a disaster doesn't happen again. And and cities, for example, because they have so much in the flood bottoms, experience flooding as a disaster. And so the 1903 flood was very significant for that reason. It really um, is the beginning of a dramatic change in the relationship that the Kansas cities have with the Missouri River. And I would say that that change is um, set in stone in 1951 um, when a next major flood happened. Um, at that point, many Kansas Cityans have, have moved away from the bottom and the, the separation, the segregation from the river becomes much more concrete um, in the post-war era. Now, Kansas City is known uh, for its boulevards and fountains, in fact, called the City of Fountains. And really, it's, it's kind of well known for its parkways and waterways and uh, kind of the long stretches that exist throughout large portions of the city. How did social reformers and politicians seek to utilize both these waterways and parkways uh, in the name of community betterment and reform? Well, every single one of those fountains is a celebration of the river. Kansas City is does call itself the river, uh, the city of fountains, and and I think rightly so. I think that is whether Kansas Cityans realize it or not. Um, it's a celebration of the river and it's symbolic of the importance of the river in their daily lives. And I do hope that as we continue to talk about this, that people will, will see that, that they will recognize a fountain as a symbol of their relationship with the world around them. Uh, fountains start in the early 20th century. They start in the progressive era and they are sold as as social betterment, they're sold by progressives and reformers as um, ways to um, provide healthy, safe drinking water, not, and not just um, because uh, teetotalers who are hoping people will drink water instead of beer, that's, that's part of it, um, that by providing a drinking fountain on the street, for example, um, can thirst their quench in a, in a, without having to go into a, a tavern. And this, of course, is important in Kansas City because Pendergast machine um, uses taverns um, in places like the West Bottom as for organizing, for political organizing. Um, but social reformers, um, progressives of all stripes, um, especially, I would argue, those who are um, influenced by sanitary uh, efficiency or by sanitation um, and by sanitary engineers, um, people we would call today environmental engineers, um, they're making the connection between a healthy and viable city um, and access to things like clean drinking water. And we see during this time in the early 20th century, uh, cities are kind of competing with each other to become healthy. Nobody wants to have the reputation of being an unhealthy city. So whether it's Omaha or Chicago or Kansas City, um, these cities are touting their statistics um, and how healthy their um, their citizens are. It's also a turning point in technology. Um, at the in the early 20th century, we'll begin to see um, the use of technologies like chlorination that will make drinking water safer. And so, the start of an infrastructure that is accessible to the majority. And by 1920. Uh, let's 
I'd say by by the 1920s and 30s, um, the majority of Kansas Cityans do have access um, to city drinking water. And so that transition to a publicly owned resource that is accessible by the majority, that happens in the progressive era. And so the fountains become symbolic of the city's power to transform and to protect its citizenry. And its infrastructure also, I think, is symbolic of the way that a city shapes its citizens. And I don't want to, although, although by the New Deal, um, the majority of people have access to drinking water, the majority of people in Kansas City do not have access to sewerage yet. That's still, um, that lags behind. So drinking water access uh, comes first, sewerage um, second often. And I also don't want to make it seem like uh, all Kansas Cityans are treated equally by their city governments, whether it's Kansas City, Kansas, or Missouri, um, because we see great disparity in the way that people have access to um, city resources, to urban infrastructure. Um, there is a privileging of white middle class and elite families in Kansas City, giving them better access um, to infrastructure that is health giving, um, and that includes. Um, drinking water and and sewerage. So the Progressive Era is is the time period um, when most American cities really began to take their shape, uh, and that the infrastructure of public health is extended, and it's slowly extended um, to the majority. Kansas City does become very famous for the way that it presents itself as a a landscape, a genteel landscape, and you referenced the parkways um, as well and the park system. And this is something that Kansas City was uh, very proud of. And other cities would come and tour Kansas City to, to see the infrastructure and to use it as a model um, for their own cities. There was great debate within Kansas City about uh, how to build and fund and upkeep this uh, infrastructure, this kind of genteel park and boulevard infrastructure, as there is today. Um, whether this infrastructure was uh, in part built for the minority um, or whether it was for the majority or whether it was serviced equally by the city. These are long debates that um, begin early in the 20th century. Um, there is bias in the way that parks are um, parks are built. Um, I found it very interesting as I went through primary sources, the way that uh, Kansas City would sell its park improvements um, with before and after photographs. And it would have a photograph of a dilapidated community. And there would usually be children um, in the pictures. And they were usually children of color. So it might be African-American children who are playing, and then that would be the before picture. And then the after picture would be a genteel parkway. And the city parks department represented these before and after photos as sort of playground for children of color versus a parkway for people, white people who have cars. And this kind of juxtaposition between the two 
was meant to symbolize great improvement for the city of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, so we do see bias in the way that um, parks are employed as resources available to, um, to a select number of Kansas Cityans. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in a Missouri Minute. And Bob Pretty with this Missouri moment about the story of an airplane flight. It was cloudy that day. The runway was marshy. A small plane heavily loaded that early morning when the young pilot reached for a dream. The plane slowly gained speed, lifted off the soft ground, cleared a tractor at the end of the runway by 15 feet, some power lines by 20, then over a hill and some trees, and Charles Lindbergh was on his way to Paris on that May 20th, 1927. Charles Lindbergh came to Missouri for an air race in 1924. He gave flying lessons to earn a living and joined the Missouri National Guard. He started flying the mail from St. Louis to Chicago. Although he crashed a couple of times, he emerged unhurt and decided he could fly all the way to Paris. Late in 1926, he rounded up some financial backers, many from St. Louis, to finance a solo flight. Never done before, but he did it in 33 hours. Not the first transatlantic flight, but the first person to do it alone. Charles Lindbergh, a member of the Missouri National Guard, flew a plane named for a Missouri city into the record books. You can see it today at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. At one point in the book, you say that Kansas City, Kansas, produced more of the wealth of the region, whereas Kansas City, Missouri, held that wealth. What do you mean by that? If you think of the West Bottoms, uh, if you think of the bottoms along the Kaw or Kansas River, um, which is where a large part of Kansas City's industrial history is, um, that's where you have uh, the, the meatpacking, for example, it's where you have the heavier industry. And a lot of that's actually on the Kansas side of the border. Uh, if you think of even today, if you think of where the, the granaries are, the elevators, um, full of wheat. Um, that's on the Kansas side. And so Kansas City is drawing in the resources um, of its region, um, of the Great Plains, for example, those cattle or those wheat fields. And it's drawing uh, labor as well. And much of the production um, and the wealth generating production is happening on the Kansas City, Kansas side of the border. The state line runs right through the middle of the bottoms. Uh, it's not the bottoms are um, are quizzically split by the state line, uh, and the people who owned those industries tended to live on the Missouri side of the line. And so, although this is operating, the Kansas cities are operating as a unit. Um, there are also ways that um, we see segregation of finances, for example. Um, so that the people who own the wealth are investing themselves on the Missouri side of the line, even if the wealth uh, and capital is being generated on the Kansas side of the line. So I think that Kansas City, Kansas has felt like it's gotten um, the short end uh, of this, the way that most people think of the Kansas Cities is that they think only of Kansas City, Missouri. And I think that Kansas City, Missouri has um, put itself forward as the highbrow part of the Kansas cities, um, the cultural capital of the region. And Kansas City, Kansas is just as important um, to this urban unit 
um, but it doesn't get the same acknowledgement or respect. And so I think it's important to recognize that many of those industries that put Kansas City on the map, that make it a competitor, um, a distant competitor, but still second place to Chicago in meatpacking, for example, uh, is, is actually on the Kansas City, Kansas side of the line. Interesting. It's actually in present day, too, thinking about all that's on the west side versus what is on the east side on the state borderline. That's very interesting. We've talked about this a little bit, going back to kind of the distribution of resources with public sanitation and, and public water. Um, during the early 20th century, Kansas City, Missouri, styled itself really as an quote-unquote all-American city. And that was defined really by the fact that they pointed out their large native-born white population. Yet, you know, in points in your book, you point out that that was not necessarily the case for the entire Kansas cities. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and this, this connects this connects to your to your previous question. Just as the industrial production is happening um, more so on the Kansas side of the line, that's also where the industrial workers reside, um, especially earlier in the 20th century. Uh, prior to uh, the 1951 flood, a lot of people still lived close to where they worked. Um, and so you have communities like Armordale, for example, um, that are full of people who live and work um, in the meatpacking uh, industry. And what we see is that the majority of immigrants or people of color live nearer to where they work. These are industries that attract immigrant populations, and therefore they live on the Kansas side of the line. And Kansas City, Missouri, loved to sort of claim um, the great wealth of the Kansas cities for itself, but would choose to be selective when it talked about its population. And Kansas City, Missouri, advertised itself as the, as the most American city. And it did so because it had, early in the 20th century, um, if you excluded the rest of the Kansas cities, it had a large native-born population. And part of this was part of that, that competition with Chicago, right? Chicago had a large immigrant population. And this is in the midst of, of nativism and the height of the Klan in American um, politics and society. And so early in the 20th century, to claim that you had this large native-born white population um, was, was to ignore um, the reality of the Kansas cities, which did operate as a social and economic unit. So majority of immigrants, a larger percentage of those immigrants lived on the Kansas side of the line. So it, it, was, it was a clever attempt by Kansas City, Missouri, to uh, ignore the reality of its um, population. Now, there are kind of larger sections in the book towards the end uh, that you point out that, you know, during the 20th century, there were two competing visions of the Missouri River that really emerged. One was an economic river, and one was a healthy river. Uh, how have health and wealth defined the river in its history? Well, I use those terms, economic river and healthy river, to try to distinguish between two strains that are, are debating what the appropriate use and management of the Missouri River is. Um, the economic river I discussed when I talked about the boosters and the political and economic elite 
and those who were connected to um, state power in Missouri, for example, who are lobbying for federal dollars to manage the Missouri River for the economic benefit of industrialists. They have a vision that I call the economic river, and that is that the river's purpose is to um, serve to produce more from the industrial economy. It, it operates as, um, it functions as part of the industrial economy. Um, the healthy river, on the other hand, is a vision that is developed by public health officials, um, by sanitarians, um, by progressive reformers, people who are more attuned to public health and uh, the needs of, of the citizenry, whether that be the city or the entire basin. And there are two individuals that uh, I talk about in the book that are really important to uh, contributing and defining this vision of a healthy river. And one of those is Samuel Crumbine. He was a doctor from Kansas, and he becomes head of the State Board of Health in Kansas for a long time um, before moving on to do work in the Hoover administration. And he's one of our most important public health officials in this um, important period um, of reform of public health nationwide, a time period in which um, new attitudes, uh, information and technologies is being taught to the average American citizen, uh, the way that germ theory is being decentralized, for example. And Crumbine uh, truly believed that the Kaw River, the Missouri River, that these were rivers that needed to be managed for water quality, that what was important was the way that waterways uh, protected people, um, the ways that um, waterways in the Midwest uh, were, were, the ways that cities relied on these waterways for basic urban services. And the other person that's uh, important is um, Robert E. McDonald from the firm Burns and McDonald. And McDonald and his firm did a lot of the engineering, the sanitary engineering, uh, and the public infrastructure for drinking water plants uh, and, and sewer plants around the Midwest. And although it was good for his business to lobby in favor of public drinking water systems and sewerage systems, um, he also had a strong political um, belief uh, in in progressive reform and the need to kind of you know secure democracy through these basic aspects of human health that if everyone has good public health then you can create economic wealth and so both Crumbine and McDonald argued from a perspective that the river needed to be managed in order to prop up the good health of the community of the city of the region itself. And both of them in, um, from their fields, from their medical field, from their engineering field, um, worked towards this. But while the healthy river vision was important, it, it was in tension with the vision of the economic river. And ultimately, the economic river wins. Uh, we have today a river that is managed first and foremost for flood control and navigation 
um, for irrigation, for recreation. And over the course of the 20th and early 21st century, um, drinking water quality um, or public health have been um, a minor concern for the way that the river is managed. So I would argue that it's time for a re-envisioning of how we define economics and health and how we think of the river. A healthy river and a healthy populace, um, I think will indeed contribute to a healthy economy. So the argument or the, the theory sort of rests on whether, whether you think a good economics creates good health or whether you think good health creates good economics and whether which of those you prioritize. Uh, and so this is something that sanitarians uh, and uh, this is something Americans have debated um, always. What do you prioritize? Do you prioritize the economy and assume that that, that money will create good health? Um, or do you focus first and foremost on, on the public good and on creating uh, healthy bodies and doing so equally uh, with the assumption that whatever comes out of that is what a good economy looks like? Uh, and so I think we continue to have this debate today. Uh, the fact that we still are debating the river's management and what the proper um, what the proper uh, role of the river is in our economy um, is is evidence of that. Finally, I want to kind of think about the present day, and you brought it up there a little bit in the last question. We can think back to the 19th century when you know, access to the waterways of the Missouri River was so important for trade, for commerce, and, and for a lot of different things. And up through the building of river walls, the construction of, you define as this navigable river, uh, how do Kansas Cityans, and really we could think of people living across the entire expanse of the river, uh, how do they view their relationship with the river today? I think there are some, some chinks in the flood wall. <laughs> I have seen since I since I have moved um, to the Midwest, I've started to see the ways um, that people's attitudes toward the river are shifting. Um, one of the other ways that I came to um, to know and to be connected to the river was through river cleanup. Um, river Relief, for example, sends hundreds of people out every single year out onto the river's banks or out onto boats in order to collect garbage. And for many people, this is the first time that they've had a chance to be on or near the river. And I think that we're seeing more and more grassroots work that gets people interested in their waterways. Um, this is in Kansas City um, along the Blue River. This is the same, uh, the same thing has happened. Um, more and more people are interested in um, seeing and protecting their waterways. Um, the origin of that, um, I think, is in part related to the environmental movement um, starting in the 70s, the 60s, and the 70s. Um, in 73, there's a flood uh, on the Missouri River that um, I think slowly begins uh, the shift among uh, some uh, conservationists about what a better use of the Missouri River would be. And there's a slow swelling at the grassroots um, in asking for more public spaces 
near the river. Uh, and I think the the single most important thing that then happens is the 1993 flood. Um, the 1993 flood uh, provides the opportunity for those those germinating ideas that there should be more public space and that um, the river needs to be managed differently. It provides the opportunity um, for some changes. And so after the 1993 flood, there were willing sellers, people who owned lands in the in the bottoms, for example, up and down um, the lower Missouri basin were willing to sell. And so that's how we um, get the origin of the Big Muddy um, National Wildlife System, the sort of string of pearls along the Missouri River. Uh, and so, of course, the idea is that you provide not just public space for people to go and get near the river, places for people to hunt, um, but you also um, give the river room to uh, room to rise. So you take the pressure off of places farther downstream if you allow the river to in, to rise into its flood bottoms during flood time. And so that is, the 1993 flood is what provides that opportunity. I think also just like the 1903 flood, it reinserts itself into the public memory. All of a sudden people are like, wow, there's a river there and that river has power. Uh, here in uh, Des Moines, although I did not live here, in 1993, the city of Des Moines lost its uh, drinking water for, I think, 12 days, um, about the same period of time that Kansas City lost its drinking water in the 1903 flood. And that was a very dramatic experience for people. People still talk about it today. They still reminisce about um, the ways that they went about their daily life um, without access to um, safe public drinking water. So, in addition to in addition to those changes um, to gain access, or excuse me, to create public access um, and to begin to shift in small ways um, the management of the river with those national wildlife refuges, um, we also begin to see more demands from the public to have access to boat ramps, for example. Um, there are very few of them. There are very, uh, very few places where you can um, take boats in and out, where you can fuel up on the river, where you could put a canoe in safely and take it out farther downstream. And so creating an infrastructure for people to access the river um, has been low, but it really begins after 1993. And then I think the Lewis and Clark expedition um, bicentennial commemoration was also important um, because suddenly people wanted to see the river. In order to remember this event, uh, people wanted to get near the river. And we began to see some infrastructure shifts. Uh, even in Kansas City, which has been the slowest city um, to, uh, to change its infrastructure and to embrace the river, um, we see some trails, we see some public parks, and um, slowly more interest, more interest in seeing the river. Um, currently, if you are in the West Bottoms, um, it's very difficult to get to the river. Um, there's likely a 12-foot flood wall um, between you and the river. And there are a few places um, like the former, the Berkeley, Berkeley Park, I forgot what its new name is. It's not Berkeley Park anymore, but the old port. Places like that that are down on the river. 
that are public spaces where if you wanted to to see clearly, touch, um, watch the river um, slowly. These are these are places that are developing. Um, but as I said, Kansas City is is much farther behind most American or developed countries in the world in the way those cities have have treated um, and revived their uh, urban connection to the river. I think we've also started to see, in addition to things like river relief and cleanups on the river, um, we've also started to see things like um, there's a, a, a race now that goes from Kansas City down to, I think, St. Charles or to somewhere near St. Louis. Um, that is a, it's a kayak race on the river. Um, I think it's called the Missouri River 340. And so there's some, in small ways, some exciting things that are happening. Um, people are more aware of the river than they were before. And for at the grassroots level, a lot of that comes back to the 1993 flood. And we've also started to see then these policy shifts. Um, in the way that uh, federal entities, for example, are treating the Missouri River. Thank you very much for joining us today for this fascinating conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. Coming up this summer, the Our Missouri Podcast will launch a four-part series celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission and moon landing, in an effort to document the history of the moon landing and grow the Historical Society's oral history archive. We will be collecting stories from listeners who are interested in speaking about their memories of this historic event. These memories of the moon landing conversations will be preserved in the Missouri Innovation and Exploration Oral History Project, with some of the stories being featured on the podcast. If you're interested in contributing your story, please contact us by email at ourmissouri@shsmo.org. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.